Hey guys, it's Mike Estefan from the University of Rochester School of Medicine. Today, we're going to continue where we left off with part two of this first episode of the Emergency Medicine Shelf Exam Review Series. The focus of this episode is going to be trauma, beginning with penetrating abdominal trauma. Let's say we have a guy who comes in and he's shot just below his right nipple. What's the next step for this guy? So this guy needs an exploratory laparotomy, also known as an X-lap. Any gunshot wound to the belly that goes through the peritoneum gets an X-lap regardless of peritoneal signs or of the patient's blood pressure. And fun fact, any injury below the fourth intercostal space, which is approximately at the level of the nipple, has the potential to be abdominal in nature. All right, so let's say another guy comes in and he's got a stab wound to his belly. What three signs are you looking for that would influence your decision on whether or not to get some diagnostic testing before sending this guy to the OR? So for the exam, in general, there are three signs that would indicate that you do not have time to do some diagnostic testing in this guy with a stab wound to his belly. The first sign would be hemodynamic instability, which is essentially hypotension after resuscitation attempts. Your second sign is going to be the presence of any signs of peritonitis, such as rebound or guarding. The third sign is simply the presence of organ evisceration which means that you are able to see organs protruding out of the abdomen. So for your exam, the presence of any one of these three signs is enough for you to forego diagnostic testing and rush this guy with a stab wound to his belly to the OR for an X-lap. If he does not have any of these three signs, that is, he is hemodynamically stable, he does not have peritonitis, and there is no signs of organ evisceration, then for exam purposes, you can consider this guy stable enough to go to the CT scanner and get a CT of his abdomen with contrast. So to summarize penetrating abdominal trauma, if it's a gunshot wound, they get an X-lap no matter what. If it's a stab wound, then it depends if they're stable or unstable. If they're stable, they can get a CT of their abdomen with contrast. But if they're unstable and they have any of those three signs, they go right to the OR. So when it comes to blunt abdominal trauma, the approach is very similar to that of a stab wound to the belly. You first need to decide if the patient is stable or unstable. If the patient is unstable, then you need to do a fast exam. However, if the patient is stable, you have time to do a CT scan of the belly. Right. Let's move on to talk about some types of specific traumatic injuries that you will see on your exam. Let's say a patient is brought in by ambulance after being found unconscious in a parking lot. They are stable, but on your secondary survey, you note bilateral post-auricular ecchymosis. What's your diagnosis? Good. So the presence of post-auricular ecchymosis is called the battle sign, and it's indicative of a basilar skull fracture. 
which can be life-threatening. Other signs that they might throw at you on your exam include raccoon eyes, hemotympanum, odorrhea, and rhinorrhea, the last two being because of a CSF leak. All right, let's say the next guy comes in, and on primary survey, you note that he's hypotensive, he has absent breath sounds on one side, and you notice some jugular venous distension. What's your diagnosis? Good. So this is a tension pneumothorax until proven otherwise. So one thing that I really want to highlight here is that tension pneumothorax is a clinical diagnosis. There is no imaging required to make this diagnosis. And in fact, if you order a chest x-ray and you happen to see a tension pneumothorax, that probably means you screwed up big time. There's a reason that this is a clinical diagnosis, and that is because this is a life-threatening disease process. Okay, so you need to intervene way before any chest x-ray gets ordered. Speaking of intervention, what do you do for attention pneumothorax? Good. The answer here would be to do a needle decompression. For your exam, the location will be the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line. However, in real life, the trend is now moving towards doing an anterior axillary decompression. Only after you've done a needle decompression do you place the chest tube. So for the next case, I'm going to give you guys a similar scenario. This guy's coming in, and he's got absent breath sounds on one side. He's hypotensive, but he does not have jugular venous distension. What is the diagnosis here? So this is a pretty difficult question. I ran into this a couple times on the Q-Banks. So the answer is a hemothorax. And what they're trying to get you to see here is that it presented like a tension pneumothorax. However, the patient did not have any jugular venous distension. The thought process behind this on the exam is that if the patient is bleeding out into their chest, that means they're going to be in hemorrhagic shock and they are not going to have the blood volume necessary to distend their jugular veins. Most of the time, they'll give you a percussion finding if they want you to differentiate between a tension pneumothorax and a hemothorax. A tension pneumothorax is going to sound hyper-resonant on percussion, whereas a hemothorax will sound dull on percussion. However, I have gotten a question where they did not give the percussion findings, and literally the only difference was the lack of JVD. This is also probably a great time to point out that not everything that you're learning for this exam holds true in real life, this being one of them. All right, moving on to our next case. Let's say this guy comes in and he's hypotensive. You notice some jugular venous distension and he also has some muffled heart sounds. What's your diagnosis here? Good, this is cardiac tamponade. The constellation of symptoms that include hypotension, jugular venous distension, and muffled heart sounds are known as Beck's triad, and for the exam, is pathognomonic for cardiac tamponade. Unfortunately, 
I really doubt the exam is going to test you on the diagnosis of cardiac tamponade. Instead, to make it more challenging, they're going to test you on some of the things that you might see on either EKG or ultrasound that would indicate the presence of cardiac tamponade. So on ultrasound, the key words that you're looking for here are diastolic collapse of the right ventricle. On EKG, the keywords you're looking for are electrical alternands, which if you don't know what that looks like, I would recommend Google searching it. It's very high yield. All right, next case. Let's say a guy comes in after a motor vehicle collision and he's complaining of chest pain. You get a chest x-ray and it shows a widened mediastinum. So what's your diagnosis here and how did this happen? This is most likely a diagnosis of a traumatic aortic rupture. These tend to occur after rapid deceleration injuries and occur because of the ligamentum arteriosum, that remnant from the fetal circulation, if you remember from first and second year. All right, next case. Patient comes in with multiple rib fractures following blunt chest trauma and appears to be in respiratory distress. You do not notice any paradoxical chest wall motion while he's breathing. What is the most likely diagnosis here? Good, this is probably a pulmonary contusion. So pulmonary contusions are very common when there are multiple rib fractures. Flail chest does not need to be present in order to have a pulmonary contusion. So if you were to get a chest x-ray on a patient with a pulmonary contusion, what would you most likely see? So typically, you'll see alveolar infiltrates on chest x-ray, which do not correspond to a lobar region of the lung. And these infiltrates will be located around the areas that have the fractured ribs. Woo! I hope you're all still awake because we covered a lot of material. For the next two weeks, I'll be breaking away from this category-based content style, and we'll be covering pairs of diseases that examiners love to test against each other, and that students often mix up. We'll talk about the subtle differences that will allow you to distinguish them from each other on the test, helping you perform at the highest level on your shelf exam. Until next week, Remember to keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.